0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Best Revenge, Episode 2 on the Fleming Foundation. Our episode today will be focused on Rome. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and my guest is, as always, Dr. Thomas Fleming, who attempted to to do this show with me when he was in Rome, but alas, technology and sickness intervened. Uh, we are glad to have conquered both the technology and the sickness, Dr. Fleming. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be well. I'm not so happy... Out of Rome. <laughs> well, uh, as always, you, you, you came, you saw, and you conquered. Uh, Rome is called the eternal city. That's, that's what people think of when, when they think of Rome. Is that just an advertising gimmick, like uh, saying that Paris is the city of light or, or New York City is the big apple?
1: The uh, phrase is very ancient, actually. It goes, it goes way back to poets of the Augustan age, like uh, the love poets Tobullus and Ovid. And it, it sums up a very sort of standard view of the Romans, about that their city actually had a purpose. The mission of Rome was to preserve and spread the civilization which they had inherited from their ancestors. Virgil in the Aeneid sums it up in uh, in the um, when he has uh, the the late father of Aeneas, Caius, in the underworld in, in Book Six. Caius tells Aeneas, and through his son, all future Romans, that while others may be better poets or statue makers and artists, the Romans have a, a job. He says, "Tu regio imperio populos romana, memento." You uh, remember to rule the peoples uh, and uh, bring them and teach them the arts of peace and to spare the fallen and subdue the proud. Wow. And this was, is this was the enduring Roman uh, self image and it's their, uh, their, their, their purpose. St. Augustine makes fun of it, he calls it the inflated fancy of proud spirit. So, in fact, in most parts of Augustine's work, he accepts the Roman view that essentially the empire is the vehicle of law and order, civilization, uh, forever,
0: for and ever. Amen. But it wasn't quite forever, was it? No, it wasn't. But in way it was uh, Rome was, you
1: know, for a long time. It was in in its day, and for uh, certainly a thousand or more years later, it the justice, most effective and humane large commonwealth the world had ever and probably will ever see. Um, that it's true that uh, in the later days, the empire itself became corrupt, but even in the, in, in the final hours of the fifth century, there were heroic generals, there were patriotic statesmen, and you know, as late as the ninth century, uh, Edward Gibbon, the great English historian who pretty much hated Christianity, he says, uh, he says of the Pope Leo Fourth of those days that he preserved the Roman virtues of his ancestors, that he was truly a noble Roman, for his defense of Rome against uh, Muslim invaders. Because uh, in, in a large sense, the struggle of the world, the struggle for civilization, has been between the Greco-Roman order as ruled by Rome and, uh, and its enemies, which were baby-killing Carthaginians in the ancient world, but uh, uh, and, and include uh, being destructive terrorists uh, who are invading Italy even today.
0: Hmm. It's quite a thing to imagine Leo and Attila uh, in that moment, that uh, he's persuading him not to to go any further and, and, and sack the city.
1: Yeah, you know, historians today, uh, over the past 150 years, they, they're, they're, they're mainly pretty anti-papal but they don't know what to do with that episode because the episode is well attested something happened when Leo went in this embassy to Attila to tell him to, to spare Rome and uh, whether Attila had already made up his mind or what, whatever now, it's all speculation but at the time uh, uh, observers believed that uh, that Leo's forceful character, and he was a very he was a very great man in his age. And Attila, we know, uh, was responsive to that. Attila always wanted to deal with the top people on the other side. He was sort of a Donald Trump character, <laughs> and uh, and I think he felt that in 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 Pope Leo the Great that he,
0: he was dealing with the best of the Romans, as indeed he was. Boy. Uh, given uh, given the the latest news stories, I, I will I will avoid going down the Donald Trump papacy route for the moment, uh, and and keep, will keep us on track. Um, I know that you had a particular poem from Oscar Wilde uh, that you wanted to use to bring us into the present moment. Obviously, we're talking about Leo and Attila and the idea of the eternal city. But would you like to share some of those verses? Yes.
1: The um, Wilde uh, Wilde, of course, was uh, was very fond of Rome. Wilde was a was a fan wrote Catholic, and he wrote a, a, a little, city, a, a little um, poem called Urb Sacra Eterna, Rome Sacred Eternal. Rome, what a scroll of history thine has been. In the first days of thy sword, Republican, ruled the whole world for many an age's span. Then of thy people thou wert crowned queen, till in thy streets the bearded goth was seen. And now upon thy walls the breezes span. Ah, city crowned by God, discrowned by man, the hated flag of red and white and green. When was thy glory, when in search for power thine eagles flew to greet the double sun, and all the nations trembled at thy rod? Nay, but thy glory tarried for this hour, when pilgrims kneel before the Holy One, the prisoned shepherd of the church of God.
0: Well, what is that, uh, that hated flag? I, I have a, a clue, given the colors, but you might, you might bring our listeners in on that.
1: The, uh, the hated flag is the flag of Italy. You know, Rome had, uh, Roman, uh, the, the, the Roman church had been given power. Uh, forget the donation of uh, Constantine. It had been given power explicitly by the Emperor Justinian. The power was expanded by Kings Pippin and Charlemagne. And so Rome had been an independent commonwealth uh, and and ruled the so-called Papal States, which is better known as the the Commonwealth, the Patrimony of St. Peter. Then in the 1840s and 50s came this movement toward Italian unification. This was, of course, really a movement by which the northern Italian rulers in Piedmont and Lombardia conquered central and southern Italy and subjugated it. The uh, and as and, and you know the 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 first Vatican Council was held as these armies are moving through the papal states, and if they hadn't adjourned the meeting, uh, they would have. Uh, they would the Pope, Pius the Ninth, became known as the prisoner in the Vatican because even though he had vast territories that the Church was supposed to own, St. John Lateran. Uh, the, the, the so-called Palace of the Chancery, they're all, all over Rome. There's huge areas which are uh, even today some of it belongs to the papal state, the, to the Vatican state. And uh, but the Pope cho- He refused to deal with the ruffians because he knew they were anti-Christian, violently anti-Christian, and immoral, and they were looters. And so there's the Pope <laughs> holed up in the Vatican. The ugly Italian tricolor, which ate the French Jacobin flag, uh, flying over sacred territory in Rome, it was it was a uh, it was a horrifying event for people in Rome. the uh, the Italian the Roman aristocracy, many of those families drew black curtains over their windows. They refused to vote or hold public office or ever receive anyone in their home. Who was an employee of the of the new government? Now, in, in of course textbooks, Garibaldi and Victor Emmanuel II, both in Italian and American textbooks, this is a triumph of democracy. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. You know, the Victor Emmanuel is George Washington, etc. But in fact, it was a, a terrible act of subjugation. And this, by a government which had already been confiscating churches and schools and persecuting the church in northern Italy for quite some time, they always claimed to be religious Catholics, but they were what secular Catholics. They believed the church should not be involved in education or even the regulation of morals. You should just give sermons on Sundays, and that's enough. There's a. If you go to Rome, uh, if you go over to Trastevere, which where I often uh, stay, and we we stay there for over a month uh, in uh, January, February, if you go across uh, the Ponte Garibaldi into Trastevere, you'll see a a statue of a man in a bourgeois dress. He looks like he's been drinking and having a good time. And it's a statue of Giuseppe Giochino Belli, who was a, uh, an interesting uh, poet of the time. He is often described by Catholics as an anti-Catholic poet who hated the Church. This is not true at all. He, may, he wrote poems ridiculed the crooked and libidinous priests and cardinals, but, you know, you could criticize the vices of the Church and still love it. And uh, he uh, wrote in the Roman dialect, he was an intensely patriotic Roman, and when the Italian state took over Rome, he, he said he put down his pen because he no longer had a country and he no longer had a reason to write. And by the way, this anti-Catholic was made, as so-called, was actually the, the papal censor for the entire papal states, reviewing what was published with newspapers and, and, uh, and magazines and books. Because Pius IX, who was, believe me, no fool, one of the greatest of the popes in history, uh, Pius IX knew enough to make a uh, belly his sentence So it's interesting how history is constantly being distorted and rewritten. And even even good learned Catholics, I know, think belly is the enemy of the church. And it's
0: completely wrong. Well, there's a lot to go into here, Dr. Fleming. So... Let me let me start by saying that I think it's clear that this was the end of any naivete for Pius the because in the beginning of his reign he really bought into all of the stuff that Garibaldi and his crew were selling their Freemasonic agenda, not quite so openly Freemasonic, but this idea of of updating and and bringing uh, bringing the papal states into into the modern era, and as the armies were marching in. He figured out, well, maybe accommodating these guys wasn't the best idea. You
1: know, there are, uh, there are a number of uh, interesting books on uh, on Pasta Night. Uh, one of the, the – the the old version was that he was a liberal and that, who had to wise up. You know, like uh, Irving Kristol's famous statement that a neoconservative was a liberal who had been mugged by reality. In yeah. fact, what he the the papal states were terribly corrupt, as most governments are most of the time, and he was trying to clean them up, and he thought there could be a a role in secular administration for secular uh, uh, for secular administrators, but um, you know he had it was very limited cleanup idea, and of course when uh, when the, uh, the when the left was started in the first time they attacked Rome. He was narrowly missed by an assassin's bullet, which killed his secretary standing next to him. And I think whatever illusions he had had when when the bullet went into the secretary, he began, and they killed his prime minister. So uh, we're talking about violent Masonic terrorists. Trying to trying to impose a reign of terror, and so he went down and lived on the border of the uh, of Naples. He didn't want to become a prisoner of the of the uh, Kingdom of Naples. And during that period, Mazzini, the the crazed uh, uh, Freemason, uh, actually began to appear in ceremonies, dressed in a bourgeois suit, but blessing the crowd as it on Easter as if he were the Pope. And again, all of this, all of this history about about uh, 19th century Rome and the, the revolutions, unification of Italy, this is carefully kept from the knowledge even of educated Italians, much less uh, Americans. But it's very much like, uh, as one one Italian said to me, "Yes, uh, in the, exactly the same time as Lincoln was conquering the Christian South, uh, Garibaldi and uh, Victor Emmanuel were." Who you know, from Masonic uh,
0: forces were conquering
1: the Catholic South in uh, in Italy. They're very parallel.
0: I was going to say, uh, but, I mean, when you, you mentioned that Belly had put down his pen because he no longer had a country, my thoughts immediately went to Jeff Davis and the idea of this man without a country. And that the sort of, I wouldn't quite say it was so developed to be considered a friendship, but the acquaintanceship between him and Pius the Ninth. And the fact that the church, even in her persecuted state, was willing and the only uh, country uh, head of state to recognize Jefferson Davis as a head of state as well, and they both understood uh, in their own ways what it was like to be invaded, subjugated, and and left uh, without a country.
1: yeah it's a it's a very powerful parallel. Of course, the Confederacy had some very able diplomats, and we have a lot of the correspondents. Uh, that went back and forth. Uh, Pius IX, when, when Davis was put in an underground prison with light clothes, hoping that he would die of pneumonia, uh, the Pope sent him his own picture. Uh, it is said that he also sent a crown of thorns. There's a dispute whether it, Davis's wife will put the crown of thorns on the picture or not. But clearly, Pius IX saw uh, the Confederacy as a Christian state he gave instructions to, to priests in uh, Ireland not to allow uh, their people to be recruited for this immoral war uh, against the Christian South. And so he was, it was a very wise and uh, sublimely brilliant person. You know, they're, they're, the world is falling apart. People are taking bets in London that the Pius IX will be the last pope the Catholic Church ever has. The Church is going out of business. And so what does he do? He declares people infallibility. All, most of his chief advisors said, you can't do this. <laughs> this is crazy. You're losing everything, and now you're going to reveal it, that the Pope is fallible. But he had a sublime confidence, which is you know, greater than the confidence of, say, somebody like Napoleon. Because you know, he didn't care about being on the right side of history. History is, is, is it's a question of being on the, right, on the side of the angels, not on the side of the historians,
0: well, there's two other unfortunate things I want to talk about, Dr. Fleming, before we get back to maybe enjoying some of the, the other architectural features of Rome. And that's both the ill-designed via, so-called Via della Conciliazione and um, what many Romans call the wedding cake, uh, the disgusting Victorio Emanuel monument. Could you give some of our listeners some insight into why Bernini did not want you to discover St. Peter's via this very long road that uh, Mussolini came up with, and why the wedding cake is the wedding cake.
1: You know, um, after uh, first of all, there was a uh, there, there were there were popes like Paul V who did a great deal of uh, desolation, and the, the Barberini popes and the Borghese popes. And uh, there's an old uh, Italian uh, uh, proverb: "What the." What the barbarians did not destroy the Barbarini did because they were the constant looting of uh, historical monuments to build papal palaces. But uh, every age in Rome you know had its own uh, aesthetic agenda and, uh, and this is uh, shown in the face of Rome and, and it makes Rome actually an, a, a more interesting place because you can see all, the, all these different periods but some, in some periods, it really got out of control. So, for example, after the uh, conquest of the Papal States, the new government wanted to show its power and wanted to make Rome more like Torino, which was more like Paris. In other words, a rational city grid uh, uh, and uh, long streets. So, for example, there's a long straight street that goes through Trastevere called the Viale, the the the, the avenue of Trastevere. This long, this this was this was from uh, the after the, the the conquest. And similarly, um, uh, the Via Cavour, of course, named after over by the over by the Colosseum. These long straight streets tended to be ideological statements. They were also ways of moving troops quickly through a city, which is what the French had learned in reconstructing Paris after after the revolution. So uh, the, a lot of the the face of Rome was altered uh, in two big periods. One, the period uh, of the monarchy, especially in the early phase uh, of the conquest, and then later in the fascist era by, by Mussolini. Interestingly, if you go to in Trastevere, there's a wonderful little museum called the Museo di Roma di Trastevere, the Roman Museum of Trastevere. It used to be called the Folklore Museum. And there they have a lot of photographs, and um, it's on the Piazza Sant'Egidio, which is sort of quite close to Santa Maria in uh, Trastevere, which is a, a magnificent church. But this, this little museum has lots of photographs and watercolors, done specifically by artists who knew that the destruction of Rome was beginning by these modernist forces of the of the Risorgimento and so they wanted to preserve a record of what Rome looked like in the good old days similarly uh, at that time they st- over by the forum they started cleaning out areas and so where now the markets of trajan were was really a settlement of uh, of, of uh, medieval houses, all ripped down. And when Mussolini, of course, came to power, he continued it, and he built that... Uh, and there, there are some needs. You know, It's Rome it was a modern city, and they made it a capital, and you have to understand that this isn't just an ideological project. And so Mussolini bulldozed that long uh, street of the uh, Roman uh, fora, uh, the imperial fora, which therefore cost a great deal of uh, of all destruction, but Mussolini also gave the architect, the archaeologist, several years. He said, "I'll give you, you know, we'll stop construction. You can dig up everything you can, because this includes like the the uh, the uh, uh, there's an area, an old piece built by Vespasian. There's there's lots of major uh, archaeological work there. But the worst thing that ever happened to Rome was the Victor Emmanuel Monument. Which is the altar of the patria, the altar of the fatherland? This huge, monstrous nightmare, which is sometimes called the wedding cake. Some people used when we used to have typewriters, people would call it the typewriter. It's you know white marble with these awful chariots on top with you know gilded horses, and it and from anywhere you look in Rome, it uh it, it you 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 have to. You have to position yourself not to see it, and it was deliberately done that way. In the same way that when they built the uh, Piazza Michelangelo, I guess, over on uh, uh, it's up from the Vatican, they deliberately built this piazza. It's a it's a it's a it's a late nineteenth century, very upscale upper bourgeois neighborhood, and it's been pointed out to me they built it so it's the only piazza in in that side of the river where you can't see Saint Peter's. Because they wanted, they want This is our neighborhood, you know. Where they were, you know, they were, they were all Freemasons, sort of like the founding fathers of our own country. And they didn't, they didn't want to even have to look at St. Peter. So a lot of, uh, a lot of strange, uh, strange things take place. But one of the ways you get to know a city, you get to know it by its odd angles and what can, what can you see from where. Like going up, uh, walking the steep hill of the Aventine up to Santa Sabina. And when you get up there, and you can, uh, it's in Santa Sabina, is perhaps the, the oldest intact major basilica. It's, it's I, probably the prettiest spot in Rome. And you, you walk around the orange grove there, and, and there's, a, there's a parapet that looks out over the city, and you can identify you know, a, a dozen major churches just from there. There was, there's a famous little keyhole. What is that in the gate for the for the Knights of Malta? And you mm-hmm. can look through that keyhole through a sheer, and you get sort of a telescopic view. But uh, all over Rome are these uh, like, wonderful odd angles. And uh, one of the things you can do is, is for example, if you go to the the biggest tourist spot other than the Spanish Steps, is probably Piazza Navona. With the Church of uh, Saint Agnes in agony, as they like to say, Sapienza in Agone, Saint Agnes on the racetrack, because the Piazza <laughs> Davona Vona still preserves the, the the shape of a Roman racecourse, and you know the, there are the, you, you you walk through not far from there. And the streets all curve weird. And the reason the streets are curving the way they are is it was the theater of Pompey. After 2,000 years, the streets still outline the theater. And so you're all, no matter how the city grows, no matter how it develops, neighborhood upon neighborhood, churches replacing temples, office buildings (laughs) replacing churches. But nonetheless, that you you are always in this organic,
0: constantly growing, but also constantly preserving the old outlines. Oh, I, I do very much love Piazza Navona. It's got great gelato and terrible restaurants. But uh, there's terrible this... <laughs> restaurants.
1: And the gelato isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you,
0: you you've don't... been there more recently oh, than I have, it. so
1: you would. Yeah, you know, I actually. Uh, you know, we we're in an endless pursuit of uh, of good gelato. We we used to go to Santa, you know, Alstacio for the coffee, but uh, that uh, it's no long now. It's a tourist trap. That's the things get discovered, and then you have to move on. We we used to go to uh, several very nice ice cream places in uh, in Trastevere, but we found a new one. What's it called? It's got a strange name, but it's it's. Um, it's near the market of San Cosimato. And uh, they, all, they advertise all their ice cream as biological, which is how the how Italians say organic, biological. Or well, what else is gelato? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, it was the big thing to look for, Stephen. I'm sure you know this. There are two key words. Don't just go to any place and buy ice cream. You want it to say either... Fatto in casa, or fatto a casa, homemade, made right there on the premises, or artigianale, which is made by craft. And uh, because otherwise they'll buy very good ice cream from a manufacturer, but you don't have to do that in Rome because, say, 25% of the places make it right there on the premises, and it's it's never more than a day or two old, because Roman ice cream does not, Italian ice cream does not have preservatives, stabilizers. It's just really authentic ingredients, treated lovingly. There's people, they'll, they'll sell you stuff they call gelato in America, and 99 times out of 100, it's just fraud. Because everything in America has to last for a month or two months or six months. Whereas in Italy, I don't know what, in a lot of ice cream stores, the flavors change every day. They must give away their
0: leftovers to restaurants or
1: sell them to restaurants because they're constantly making the new stuff.
0: Well, and your your tra- uh, your traveler hack there, um, Dr. Fleming of of homemade applies here in, in Paris as well. Uh, if you're looking on the chalkboard for Fea Maison, uh, how, yes. you know, uh, house made, because there's a notorious number of even our, our very good restaurants here where a lot of that's outsourced. So um, I'm sure our listeners can appreciate that. Now you're talking about Piazza Navona, and we're wandering a little bit, kind of right into the city. And we could talk about Bernini's, col- Bernini's column and, and the obelisks and Borromini's church there and how they were rivals. I want to hit pause on that for a moment and go to some of the more ancient things, um, like the Colosseum, like the Baths of Caracalla. I remember we were talking earlier this month and uh, we were trying to coordinate a phone call and you told me that you were, uh, you were in the Baths of Caracalla in the morning. And I immediately was transported uh, in my mind to this peaceful oasis, because it's not that popular among the tourists because, you know, it doesn't have all of the, the Disneylandification of the other monuments. But yeah. I, I just, I loved being there and I, I was somewhat envious that morning. I was thinking, huh, the, Dr. Fleming's getting to walk the Baths of Caracalla. Can you talk about those two classical uh, architectural structures and then maybe if we have time we can, we can walk back to Piazza Navona and some of the quote-unquote new stuff in Rome. The nice
1: uh, the Baths of Caracalla are wonderful. They're located uh, out past the Circus Maximus, so it's a bit of a walk if you don't know the bus routes. I, I tend not to use buses and never use taxis in Rome because, first of all, taxis take as long as it does to walk half the time. But um, it's, a, it's a bit of a hike out there, and if you take a nice route, like you walk, walk through the Circus Maximus, it's quite a, quite, a, quite a nice walk. But as a result, most of the visitors I see tend to be Roman or at least it, Italian. It was, of course, the, the Roman world, the Roman social and uh, world of, of cities was built on a couple of institutions, the theater, uh, the bath, the racetrack, and uh, and of course, uh, you know, the public administrative buildings that, and it, which were called basilicas because uh, the shape of the basilica church is based on the shape of the Roman office building. They decided they would not imitate Greek and Roman temples lest there be any confusion. And so, this beautiful shape that goes back to the Hellenistic world, to, to, the, to the Greek world, and the, after Alexander the Great, this beautiful uh, building shape. You, it's called a basilica because it was a royal building, but it was they were administrative. And that's been adapted to churches. But uh, so to, to go out to the to the baths, the 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 baths were an indispensable part of Roman life. If you were very rich, you could have your own little private bath. And there are there are there's a Roman house uh, that's been excavated uh, right near the Column of Trajan, and it's only been. Owned for a few years, and uh, much of the house complex is a is a private bath. But you had to be very very rich to be able to tap into the aqueduct and use that water and, and create your bath. Romans of all social classes, all social classes attended these men and women. As time went on, uh, they had uh, men bathed at one time of day and women bathed at another. But as and and as, as the centuries went on, these bath complexes. From originally being fairly simple reconstructions became massive places because they would have libraries you could go in and read, there'd be gymnasia, and of course there's the, 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 the cold pool, the warm pool, the hot pool, and people would spend their whole day there reading, talking, eating, drinking, exercising, poets uh, would 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 hang around reciting their work, and uh, some some uh, Latin comic poets make fun of this. Say, you know, you 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 want to go someplace for a little peace and quiet, and you've got some jerk who's reciting his latest ode. And uh, but uh, we we have such a lively picture, and there are several bath complexes in Rome, parts of which have been uh, preserved. But the best preserved by far is of the. The Baths of Caracalla. Caracalla was a rather rotten emperor, the son of Septimius Severus, and uh, this has a lot of it was quarried for various churches and papal monuments, but there's still enough of it. Beautiful floor mosaics, and uh, and lots of uh, lots of ruins of the walls, and you can get a real feeling for the the magnificence. Of an empire that could this is this is this would been one of a dozen bath complexes in Rome. It could it could house ten twenty thousand people at a time, and in great great opulence, great wealth. But it was open to people of all social classes. So the 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 a lot of the picture of the Roman world we have is fairly distorted. You know the the oppressed working classes and people, the idle rich on top, but actually Rome was a vertical city. The different social classes tended to live in the same building and on the same street, like uh, 18th century Edinburgh was was similar in this respect. Whereas our cities, you know, the rich live in one neighborhood and the poor uh, live in others. But for Rome, they're all Romans. They're all living by jowl together, often, often in the same Building rich people living higher up because the air was better. You didn't have to smell uh, all the, the filth in the streets. But but they but not but not the kind of social segregation that we demand in, in America.
0: No gated communities, I guess we would say, right? No, unless you uh, had a nice country place. And some of their country places, uh,
1: Ammianus Marcellinus, in the writing of the time of Julian the Apostate, says. Roman senators had places of the country that otherwise would be called an entire nation-state so there there were huge uh, huge estates by the way not so much run by slaves as run by uh, serf and peasant labor slaves are pretty expensive proposition it turned out in agriculture and you got more efficient work out of people by by paying them or, or making them sharecroppers uh, the this slavery uh, both Partly under the influence of, of Christianity, but partly uh, really it, it began to make less and less economic sense. Slavery evolved into into something more like uh, serfdom or PH.
0: Well, if you're if you're in the Baths of Caracalla and you you come back over the Chalian Hill, you'll get to the Colosseum. And some people might say, well, you know, that was just a a place where the the Christians got killed. So this could be a place place of pilgrimage, but it's also so so much. Uh, other history that that was there prior to that uh, Christian time.
1: Yeah, the 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 uh, the Colosseum, of course, is uh, technically known as the Flavian Amphitheater. It seems to have been built by uh, by this uh, principally by the son, uh, the second son of the Emperor Vespasian, that is Domitian. There had been there a big statue, a colossal statue of Nero as Apollo. And that got moved, and they changed. the head. you know, Nero was a nut nice job, uh, whereas Vespasian was uh, was was an extremely sane and lucid and humble middle class middle class ruler. So they built the Colosseum for various kind of sports and entertainments, uh, you know, wild beast fighting, uh, various things, including gladiatorial combat, in which you know, <laughs> fairly high proportion of, uh, of homicides. But you know, if you fought well, you were usually spared. It's not—it's not the kind of grisly entertainment uh, that we think of in, in America. I used to, when when I would teach uh, Roman history and classics and things at universities, they would say, "Oh, those evil Romans—you know—they exulted in the spectacle of bloodshed." And I said, "Well, what's your favorite movies?" You know, they—you know—they in those days—you know—might have been uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly or some war movie. Said, so, "You know, your favorite movies." You know, you've got hundreds of people being mutilated and dismembered and blown up, and yet you have the nerve to complain <laughs> about the Romans like these blood spectacles. You know, people go to the Indianapolis 500 for the sole reason so that they, they hope they're going to see somebody die in a fiery crash. So far as historians can reconstruct, no Christian was ever thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. Uh, it was the uh, if, uh, this is uh, except accent, You might be a Christian, but the reason you were there is because you were uh, uh, a criminal fighting fighting with beasts. The, there were other pl- where you executed cr- uh, Christians. For example, there was a, a race course of uh, what's it called? Caligula and uh, uh, Gaius and Nero over uh, the Vatican Hill, and it's at that race course uh, that um, Saint Peter was almost certainly uh, executed. And the question is, why there and not at one of the race courses or one of the other venue, entertainment venues in the middle of Rome? Of course, by at that point, the Colosseum had not even been. But there were other you know, race courses like the Piazza Navona and the, the Capus Martius. And the answer is because in the Great Fire that hit Rome, uh, where Nero blamed the Christians, uh, which had, had nothing to do with it, But in the great fire, it it burnt all these places down. So if you wanted to have uh, horse races and uh, burn a couple of Christians, the place to do it was across the river, really out in the boondocks uh, in the Vatican. And so this is where Peter met his end, and it's where he appears to have been buried. And so they built uh, a place of worship on the site of of, uh, Peter's grave, and generation after generation preserved the knowledge that this was the place where Peter had been martyred, and uh, eventually when uh, Constantine had churches built, and by the way, it's very interesting that almost all of Constantine's major churches are built outside of Rome or just inside. The Roman aristocracy was very non-Christian till ver- till fairly late. And uh, they did not want to see a church in the Roman Forum. They did not want to see a church in the heart of old Rome. So if you look like St. John Lateran, way up uh, on, on one end of the city, the church of St. Agnes outside the walls, St. Lawrence outside the walls, St. Peter outside the walls, all of these were outside of Rome. And, uh, and of course, you can take the so-called Scavi tour of St. Peter, and now you can go layer after layer, and what you discover, and this is not just Catholic superstition, all the work has been done by more or less non-Catholic scholars and archaeologists, the, the site of Peter's burial seems to be right under the altar of St. Peter's. And that's because generation after generation piously preserved this memory. And one was a place where you have this experience all the time. You go ground, ground level at St. Peter's, of course, is a, is a renaissance to baroque construction. But as you go under, you go down to you couldn't go down even to a level where you find pagan burials uh, because it had been used as a burial site. Go to San Clemente, a beautiful basilica hmm. in Rome not too far from the Colosseum. And uh, there's the, the, the late medieval church that we, that we see today. But then you go downstairs to the, to the late Roman church, which is huge and underlying. It was built on top of it. But you go below that level, and before long, you are in a mithraeum. That is, it's, it's like a Masonic lodge where people were given instruction into the rites of Mithra. And as you go below that, there is a spring of bubbling water, because of, which may have been one of the sources for the Vestal Virgins to gather their water, clean their altar. In any event, the, the, this, the, it was a sacred spring, which made the place sacred, and it's still it's this ancient pa- pagan spring, still under the Church of San Clemente.
0: Well, there's there's a there's a lot of lot of questions I have for you there, Doctor Fleming. Let me let me uh, confine it to a quick question on the Scavi tour. Do you still sign up for that uh, on the side of St. Peter's? And it's is it still like a two or three week waiting period to get in on that?
1: Depending on the time of year. You now, I haven't done it in about three or four years, but I continue to look into uh, for for other people what what the drill is. Um. It, in the summer and uh, spring, summer and early fall, it can be you better sign up long in advance. In the winter, in, in, uh, after Christmas, that is after after yeah, uh, uh, by January 7th, by, a lot of Rome, Rome becomes very interesting. A lot of restaurants close down. It's almost like the, uh, the uh, August holiday where everybody gets out. But, after, but Rome becomes a ghost town in the second half of January and early February. Then uh, uh, the, it, it may only need uh, signing up for a, a day or two in advance. But you, you definitely want to check. Um, you, you get a lot of false information. For example, I was told that uh, if you want to go to the Vatican Museum, you can go in the afternoon. Don't bother to reserve because nobody goes there. Well, the, the, admittedly, the line was only a half mile long, and it really took us an hour and a half to get into my least favorite place in Rome. <laughs> and um, But the, 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 the problem was, I realized uh, after I'd stood in line for 45 minutes, it was Monday. And Monday, the problem in Rome and throughout Italy is everything closes on Monday. That is, Monday is just an extension of Sunday, as far as they're concerned. So Sunday, everything's closed. And in, like for example, a lot of stores only reopen on Monday at four o'clock. So if you want to go to a a clothing store or something, all over Italy, Monday morning is not the time to shop. So in in Rome, if you look at the list of museums and mon, you know everything. I don't care the Forum, the Palatine, the Colosseum, the Capitoline Museum. They're all closed on Monday. There are two things that are open. One. Is the uh, Vatican Museum or museums? It's a, it's a huge, vast, falling conflict uh, uh, complex, not unlike Dante's hell. Uh, you know, vast. You know, you you, know, you walk in, you say, you think of Dante's lines. So many I had not known. that death had undone so many. <laughs> these, these Zombie tourists wandering around, bewildered, uh, being being led by the nose by their tour guide. But um, it's only the Vatican Museum and the the so-called uh, Roman houses of the Palazzo Valentini, and those are 2 They're the two major monuments open. So if you want to go to either one of those on Monday, uh, think, think again. Think again. <laughs> by, by the way. Don't believe yeah, anything you see on a website either, including a website. Like if it's a website run by the government entity that manages the business, they they they'll give you the wrong hours. They'll say open every day, but of course, then if you read the fine print a little further on, it'll say and uh, uh, the hours are nine to five every day. But of course, closed Monday. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, you, you always have to double-check, and I find it's always better, although this isn't true in the case of the Vatican Museum, which is so hard to get to on foot. Uh, but ordinarily, I like to stop by when the place is open and just and just walk in and talk to the people a few minutes and find out what's a good time. In the case of these Roman these Roman houses, it's, it's, it's awfully honky-tonk, too. A lot of audio visuals, which I didn't like, but it was worth going to. But everything on the Internet turned out to be wrong about how you could. And they wanted you to pay 18 euros a person for a reserve ticket. You had to get it so many days in advance. I walked in at 11 o'clock and I said, you have a a place open. And they said, well, there's an an Italian tour in a half hour, an English language tour uh, in hours. And I said, but I could just get it today. Yes. Because all the information on the Internet was you had to reserve so many days in advance. I mean, it's all, you have to, this, this has always been true in Italy. Whatever the guidebook says, whatever the official information is, they probably changed their mind. Especially on like, the entrance to the forum. There are, there are about four possible entrances. And it's just up to somebody's whim that week, where the, where,
0: how you're going to go about doing it. <laughs> to, to be fair, Dr. mean, it's not just the Italians who have this wrong. Uh, the Greeks do it, too, if I remember from our time together in Athens. Um,
1: but see, the Italians the, pretend to be a modern progressive. The, other, the Italians pretend to be French. The Greeks, the, the Greeks don't make any pretense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it,
0: was, it was Greece where I, I had the first uh, premonitions of of your wife's uh, museum stamina. But it was confirmed when we went to the Vatican Museum together some years ago. And uh, I was uh, like, uh, I I look at the Vatican Museum the same way I look at the Prado or at the Louvre, which is I'm going to spend about two or three hours seeing a few things I really like. And then I'm getting out of there. And uh, your wife's ability to to stay in a museum that large for for roughly double or triple that time is astonishing. Um, And I just I, I don't I can't keep up with her. Uh, in that way. Now, l- l- you, you
1: listen. You can go to a small town museum in Iowa, and you can't get out for two hours. my wife. <laughs> we went when well, we went to the Museum of Folk Life in Trustavery, I mean, this is a museum with basically one floor worth looking at, with these old, you know, a couple of rooms of old pictures and photographs, and then some rooms with. M- street scenes and house scenes and things like that. Really, I don't know anybody in the world who would spend more than 20 minutes there. I was there for an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) So, yes, no, it's a good thing. Uh, It's a a good thing. I love my wife, and I also have lots of stamina, (laughs) which I've developed. But my my eyes and my mind get tired. I I just end up sitting down, and I, I always have a book I can read. But the Vatican Museum, it, it is the baton Death March every time we go there. <laughs> I, I, I swore I am never coming to this place again. You see, the, there were certain things I wanted to make sure we didn't get into, like the Sistine Chapel, which is, first of all, in my view, it's an aesthetic nightmare, quite apart from the the, the billions of people who are all crammed into one spot.
0: And, uh, right, plus all those Asian was, tourists and, uh, taking flash photos when they've been told not to take flash photos.
1: Yeah, they take yeah they're taking flash photos of each other taking flash photos <laughs> but uh, you know I, one thing i've learned is that you know there are different kinds of asian tourists The the worst are the mass chinese tourists so you know, they because they're these are people who haven't had money for for a very long time and they don't have much in you know, the savvy and they come with stiff 75, 100 people, and being led by complete ignoramus, and they don't want to pay money to actually go in anywhere. So they stand outside, uh, and their tour guide tells them why, what they would see if they went inside. <laughs> we stayed in the Piazza Santa Croce for a couple of times in Florence. And they did these, these mass invasions, uh, like once an hour of, of these Asian groups. And then they would never go into the Church of Santa Croce, but they were, there was one leather goods shop where they had a Chinese clerk. And I, I swear they were going, buying stuff made in China and mislabeled in Florence because it was clear this place was shady. But, you know, on the other hand, you meet people when they're traveling by themselves, you meet uh, Japanese and some Chinese tourists. They're perfectly nice people. We were sitting in Mario's in Florence, which is one of our uh, favorite dumpy places. But it's, it's, it's you know, it's 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 uh, half the people are just local neighborhood people. And then the other are, are just huge numbers of Asians walking in all to get their bistecca Fiorentina. And two Japanese girls sat down. My wife rolled her eyes. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. But you know, I chatted them up. They had excellent English. They were well educated. They had very nice manners. And I told them they were eating the best uh, Florentine beef steak you could get in all of Tuscany. And they were so happy. And the the owner starts giving me the high sign to say thanks for the thanks for the uh, thanks for the good words. But uh, to people are what you make of them. If you, I, I take pity on people in, in restaurants and museums and, and walk over and say, Can I help you? And they'll, they'll, they'll be really angry about something. they say, look, let me talk to the waiter, or the Italian word for this that you want is... And I find that by, by just taking a sort of proactive, as they say, uh, stance, I can cut short a lot of the misery of travel by just, by sort of playing the good Samaritan. Because then instead of getting angry at people get, getting angry, instead, by, if you help them, then they're happy and you're happy.
0: I know well, I'm destroying after, my
1: reputation is a curmudgeon.
0: Well, after you've spent a, a long uh, day in a museum, you might want to sit down and have a glass of wine somewhere, especially if you're with Dr. Fleming. And uh, since Italy is a wine country, like like France and, and let's say like California is in the United States, I tend to think you have to try pretty hard to drink bad wine in, in Italy. Dr. Fleming, am I, am I being a, a bit too generous?
1: Well, it depends on where you are. For example, if you're sitting at a bar on the Piazza Navona, they they will do their best to to find you bad wine uh, for a high price. <laughs> the worst the worst places around the Vatican, because they assume that the the pilgrims who come to the Vatican are are sheep waiting to be sheared. I once saw first time I was in Rome. I went to having lunch near the Vatican, and a group of Irish nuns. First of Served appallingly bad food, and then and then they got uh, uh, an inflated bill. But if you're wise, and you stay away from the Piazza Navona and the and the and the Vatican area. And if you, uh, one way of testing the authenticity of a restaurant is ask them about the house wine. And if they say it's good, you know it's not great, but it's good. And if the wine, if you get one glass of the house wine and it's good, probably the restaurant is not so bad. But if they want to sell you a thirty euro bottle of wine right off the right off the bat, or, or eight euros for a glass, then probably uh, you, you're better off just drinking your glass of wine and getting out. But the wine, wine in Italy, of course, is different everywhere you go, and usually people end up ordering the wine curta. You know, so they, so everywhere you go, they order Chianti, or they order you know Barolo or Barbera or whatever. Whereas I always I always specify, like in in, in Rome I say, I want un buon vino latiale. I want a I want a, I want a wine from Lake. I want a local wine. What's and uh, I used not to drink the red wine. And uh but I finally went to a wine bar about ten years ago and the guy said, No, we have some excellent red wine and it's it's dry, it's somewhat spicy, it's very interesting stuff. They make uh the, of course uh Rome is famous for its white wine. The Frescati and to the south, the, the famous Estes, which had been very bad for a long time. And now they've, they've reinvented it. And it's quite a good one. And um, there's, there's all sorts of wonderful wine uh, that's, that's, that's locally done within 5, 10, 20 miles of Rome, And in stores, it's amazing. We were buying good wine for under 6 euros a bottle. Now, this is actually, the, even though the price, the, the, the exchange rate is like $1.10, $1.11 uh, to the euro, the fact is that Italian prices, but hotels, restaurants, food prices, the Italian price includes tax, tip, service, everything. So when you buy something for 6 euros, it's actually less than, than the equivalent in English in, in, in America because you... They, they they've included all of the add-ons that, that uh, we have here. I mean, America's the land of twenty nine ninety nine. You know, everything is you always price it a penny less because pe- and nobody, of course, is smart enough to figure out that twenty nine ninety nine plus eighteen percent tax or whatever is going to end up being more than thirty dollars. We all know that. We all know that. But um, so, Italian right now, if you're going to Rome, it's actually a real because. The exchange rate; it's pretty affordable, and the and the wine. But just don't don't just don't go around drinking Chianti in Rome.
0: That's that's alien. That's a hundred miles away. <laughs> well, I suppose it's also I'm like wine. having it's like having lasagna in Rome too, Doctor Fleming. It's not something that you do. Uh, but I I think this is the problem. Uh, Americans we tend to think of Italian food the same way that people think of American food is a sort of amorphous blob of a. a an assortment of three or four dishes that we know, we don't realize just how regional uh, Italy is, that there are certain dishes that they don't even, they've never even heard of. When I talk about my favorite dishes in Rome, I talk about oxtail, I talk about veal cheek, I talk about tripe. And as I'm talking to someone from Milan about how much I love oxtail, uh, he'll tell me I've never even heard of oxtail. You know, he's not that. He's not that.
1: My last dish in Rome, my last meal in Rome, uh, right before we left, this was uh, just a few days ago, was the Coda Vaccinata, the, 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 the oxtailed, at uh, Da Fabrizio, one of my, my favorite restaurants in, in Trastevere. They always welcome me there. I'm a visiting fireman. But, <laughs> uh, you know, Roman food is, is intensely provincial and local. A lot of it is uh, weird stuff. I mean, they will actually deep fry beef veins. Uh, one of my favorite dishes is carciofi uh, e which is deep fried artichokes and calves' braids. Every part of the animal is used in Roman cuisine. They had a lot of a big butcher business, of course, going all the way back to, to, to ancient times. But they, they have a dish
0: called
1: been uh, I haven't tried. it. Uh, it's called Caratella, and what it is, it's the it's basically the it's the innards of a sheep uh, of what you would make haggis out of the lungs, the liver, the things like that. All all this big mess, and uh, I'm dying to try it, but uh, I, I I I missed it this time. But the but every but the it's it's a crude cuisine like uh, like the spaghetti amatriciana. With it, with its unsmoked uh, bacon and onion, and it's 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 crude and powerful and flavorful. I read a uh, a review on some website of a restaurant, and the person was complaining that the food was was just predictable and stupid. And the owner wrote back, and he said, "You see, you are from Milan? And so Milan has an international, sophisticated cuisine. We in Rome are simple people with simple food." simple and direct and plain, and, you know, it's peasant-like. Now, this is, could you imagine somebody saying that in New York City? You know, (laughs) you come from a sophisticated place, but, you know, we in New York, you know, all we eat are hot dogs or whatever.
0: (laughs) But Rome,
1: it's truly true. The cuisine is very distinctive, but it's based on a lot of pretty crude ingredients. And I have to say, I really like Roman cooking.
0: Well, and we're we're showing our biases a little bit, Dr. Fleming, because we talk about Tristevere. I obviously, during my semester at Thomas More College, I lived in Tristevere. You like staying in Tristevere. We both stayed uh, on the Janiculum for a former Rockford Institute events, So we should admit our bias, but I, I should explain that geographically, for those who haven't been to Rome, that the river divides the Vatican and Tristevere from pretty much the rest of the city. And Tristevere was where the slaves lived. And so when you're talking about all these, when Dr. Fleming's talking about all these crude dishes, oxtail, tripe, well, this is what the noble families didn't want to eat. So what do you do with that when you're a slave at the end of the day and you're walking home? You just reach out, grab that pig's head, you know, carve out some veal cheeks, go home or take that oxtail, bring it back home. And guess what? You've got dinner. Um, and it turns out that all that stuff tastes pretty good
1: especially if you uh, learn how to cook it. One of the uh, restaurant areas that, is, that has been famous for since forever, but is still very good is the, is the Roman ghetto. And uh, like uh, restaurants like Dagi Ghetto. And uh, these were originally uh, Jewish kosher restaurants. There, very few of them are, are kosher anymore. Uh, and uh, very few are Jewish. But the Jewish cuisine of the Roman ghetto all it is, is medieval Roman cooking. I mean, there's no nothing especially Jewish about it. There's some dishes, obviously, and there's some of them avoid pork, but but, uh, that that we were uh, were taken to lunch uh, this last time at a place called uh, Piperno, and a very quiet, dignified place in the ghetto. Very, very nice, and the food, again, all classic, wonderful Roman food, and uh, you, and it's, it is not always easy to find good places. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways uh, in Rome, because you know, there's a lot of the, the heavy level of tourism, means that restaurateurs tend to be cynical. And uh, there are restaurants that are very good, but they're very good if you speak Italian and you know your way around. Otherwise, they're going to throw some overpriced slop at you. And uh, I, I, I ate at one of those places called the, the Arco di San Calisto. March of Saint Callistas, and uh, I had a wonderful dinner. But I've noticed that everybody on the internet, all the Americans, are angry. They say they're tricked into into s- hidden expenses, and the food isn't good. And they tried that with me for thirty seconds, and I told them where they could shove their suggestions, and in a very polite way, and smiled. And then the waiter, the waiter turned from Mister Hyde to Doctor Jekyll, and uh, immediately. But there are also there are areas of Rome where uh, you, can, you get a much better deal. So up on the Janiculum Hill, there are very few tourists up there. And even the foreigners are living there. So they have cheap restaurants like Il Focolare or expensive restaurants like Il Cortile. But they're all great value for money because they're, they're completely untouristic. And that's where Romans from Rome tend to go up to Janiculum. There are nice family-run places, interesting, right? And there are, there are little spots all all over the city. There are even places not far from the Colosseum that are pretty good. But uh, and I used to eat at a place called Taverno Romana right near the Roman Forum. It's the the cranky elderly owners uh, have died, and a uh, new group has it. But the, the food is still good. It's not as it's not as it as it used to be, but it's 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 Possible to eat very well with a lot of money in Rome. And that's not possible in Chicago,?
0: It? Well, well, and part of saving that money, Dr. Fleming, is, is cooking at home. Uh, I know that uh, you stayed in hotels uh, as, as of high, but whenever I go to Rome, I usually try to stay these days at an Airbnb or some sort of situation where I can cook because that's part of a great joy uh, being in Italy or in a lot of European countries, frankly. Going to the market, picking out your your meal, and then putting it together, and that'll save you a lot of money as well.
1: Oh, absolutely! For this past time, we stayed a few days in a hotel uh, because we were then going to Naples. But when we came back, we spent a month in an apartment uh, on the Valle Glorioso in Trastevere. Now it's about three blocks from the market at uh, at uh,
0: San Cosimato. And, in fact, and how did you find this apartment, Doctor Fleming?
1: I found it through a uh, verbal and home and away, which work okay. together. And And uh, and so the good thing about that is, I, I've tried just trying to go through individual people, but then the, you don't have quality control. You know, you know. There's a certain there's a certain guarantee that people working these agencies make, and and we we're 100% satisfied. We ended up paying less than eighty dollars a night. And for uh, we had a living room, dining room combination, a kitchen, a bathroom, and two bedrooms. And in in an upper middle class building, uh, in a very quiet backwater area, so it was uh, it it couldn't have been pleasanter. And there's a plaque on the building which said that uh, Sergio Leone, the great director of spaghetti westerns had uh, had actually been brought up there. and so we so there we were we so we watched one night we watched a fistful of dollars in italian and uh and uh and and thought about uh, leone growing up he tells wonderful stories that they would get pieces of wood we were very steep, steep steps at the end of our street uh if just just one building away so very long steep steps like a mountain slope and they'd take they would take uh, wooden slats and, and, and toboggan down them. And Leone says that they, would, they, thought, they believed that if they urinated on the steps, it, they would go faster. So that, <laughs> that must be pleasant to, to wipe out on, on uh, you know, uh, you not only break your leg, but you're full of <laughs> filth. But um, he said he wanted to make a movie out of it, but, uh, out of his experiences, but then he saw Fellini's great movie about his youth, Ivetoloni, and he decided against it. But apparently that's a lie. He never he never wrote the script. But um, but yeah, every there's a, there's a, again there's a sense everywhere you go. It's not just it's not just the Emperor Augustus or it's not just Bernini, but uh, you know we we're, 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 we were living where, where uh, Sergio Leone. Uh, the, uh, somebody told me the other day that uh, when Leone was asked what kind of an actor was Clint Eastwood, he says, "Well, Eastwood has two acting styles: hat on, hat off."
0: oh that is great um well we don't want we don't want to uh to give our listeners too much uh today i think dr Fleming, what i would like to kind of close with is i think we've whetted the appetites of our listeners enough to say okay all right you've got me dr Fleming. i want to go to rome uh, I suppose we can agree that, that summer is probably the absolute worst time to go. You've alluded to January, February, where things are cheaper because uh, the city is quite abandoned. Obviously, it's colder as well, so you need to be prepared for that weather. Yeah. Uh, but can we talk about some 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 just some just basic travel tips? Now, I want to point out to our, our listeners, our charter listeners basically have access to Dr. Fleming. You can write to him, and he can help you out specifically. Our uh, gold and, and silver members... Uh, Dr. Fleming is going to be putting together a basic travel guide. So if you're interested in something like that, just send him an email and once he has that done, he'll send that off to you. But if you're a charter member, you'll get a little bit more personalized attention, uh, yet another reason to upgrade. Uh, So apart from times of year, Dr. Fleming, and neighborhoods and some of the foods we've talked about, what are some basic things about being in Italy and being in Rome specifically that um, our listeners should know about?
1: One, I think... uh, A lot of it has to do with attitude. I've I've been, uh, you know, I'm in Italy every year, and sometimes I'm taking groups, and uh, sometimes with just regular students, sometimes with very rich people. And sometimes very rich people have the idea, you know, I'm used to having things my way, and so I want, why can't I have regular bacon and, and fried eggs for breakfast in this hotel? They want everything. And I said, look, if you want to have it your way, go to Burger King. Don't come to Italy, because... Here, uh, they're going to have it their way, and if you try to force them to do it your way, they're going to get angry. You, you, uh, you have to realize that a waiter can be a man of dignity in an Italian restaurant. If it's an expensive restaurant, he's, he could be feeding a family of four on his, uh, on his wages. They don't, they don't really uh, make money off tips. They're, they're, they're not servile. They're courteous and polite. But you're also, it's, it could be the it could be the owner's son that's waiting tables on you. So don't treat people like they're like they're lackeys. Treat them treat them with respect. It, all we, a good restaurant. Ask them for say, I want to eat something distinctive. I want to eat something I've never eaten before. Something that's very local. Don't always. Some people say, well, you know, I all, all I want is beefsteak. Well, you know, go to Texas. Go to Colorado. The the everything. Uh, yeah, when you visit a new country and you be, you begin to think in, in a different way, you begin to perceive in a different way. Study some of the language. Your you, you French are pretty ruthless about about uh, laughing <laughs> at you if you if you don't speak good French. Um, unless of course it's a desk clerk at a hotel, they always tell you, "Oh, you speak so well, Monsieur." But it's uh, <laughs> really
0: true.
1: But the Italians don't care. They don't care how ungrammatical your, your Italian is, no matter how badly you pronounce things. I used to know somebody who would, wanna, would end up ordering a piazza instead of a pizza. <laughs> which is I said, well, you must really be hungry. But, um, <laughs> but they, 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 they don't care. And the more you work on it, of course, the more, the more delighted they are. Italians are really a remarkably outgoing and friendly people. And the farther south you go, friendlier, perhaps more hypocritical they are. But people are much nicer in Rome than they are in Florence. Mm. And they're even nicer in Naples as they're taking your eye teeth out of your head with a pair of flyers, but they're, they're doing it with a smile. But, um, just joking, I love Naples. But, uh, so, be, 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 let, let, let the city wash over you. I used to walk all over Rome 20 years ago without a guidebook. And I would, I would discovering things that no one had ever seen before, like the Church of Santa Cecilia. <laughs> but, you know, you, 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 why read the guidebook before you look at something? Experience it, and then, then bring the blue guide, which is very useful, or, or the Michelin, but look, look, at, look at it afterwards. Of course, you want to read up some things in advance. You want to study history. You want to know something about the art but you don't, there's also got to be some room for just getting lost and seeing what, what, what comes up. I once walked the wrong way on the Tiber for five miles and found amazing things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's 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 the wonderful thing, Dr. Fleming, is um, I, 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 I feel that our smart devices, rather than tethering us, actually give people a lot of freedom who may not possess some of that bravery that you're talking about, is that I say just go down this alleyway and just keep going until you get uncomfortable. And if you need to, at that point, you can pull out your smartphone and figure out where you are. Right? So in, in yeah. the age of smartphones, you can't really truly be lost. So have the luxury of just wandering as you, as you propose. Uh, it's really fantastic what you can run into. And, and with 900 churches in Rome, there's no shortage of what you can run into there. The, the number of dead bodies, saints, uh, miraculous uh, things that I had only recently remembered that Caravaggio's, a Calling of Saint Matthews was inside San Luigi Francese, um, and I saw people gathered gathered in the corner, and I thought, "What are they doing?" Oh my gosh, I forgot that that's in here. And uh, you know, blink, and you're going to miss the Caravaggio hidden in some side altar of a church. So, so there are three, there are three Caravaggios in that
1: one little area. You hmm. know, all all on all on Saint Matthew, and there I think there are three three of his very best paintings
0: right there. Yes.
1: And sometimes, uh, by the way, if you, go in, if you go into San Luigi Francese, the French church, uh, not far from the Piazza Navona, between the Pantheon and Piazza Navona, if you go in there later afternoon, like 3.30, the, I found, it just happen to be over and over and over. The organists, they have a very beautiful French-style organ there, and the, and the organist will be uh, practicing. And uh, it's really quite amazing, because there's very few people there at that time of day, and have a squint at the Caravaggios, and then sit there and listen to the organ. It's uh, it's when when these accidents happen. Just sit down. we in Santa Cecilia one day, just looking at the at the famous uh, statue of of Saint Cecilia, and um, the, the 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 church organist came in and was a first class professional and sat there and, and practiced beautifully.
0: Well, and how are some cultural ways that they can prepare? I mean, I know you've talked, you alluded to reading The Gibbon, uh, which, of course, is a very ambitious thing for a potential visitor. Um, I don't imagine you're necessarily going to recommend that people watch Roman Holiday or something. But uh, what what are (laughs) other sort of cultural ways that someone could prepare visually, uh, and obviously not by watching any Rick Steves television shows, uh, to get ready to be in Rome? Yeah, I I have to say that I think Rick Steves probably does a,
1: a great deal of harm in teaching people how to behave like jerks in Italy. Well, you are clothing where you know, the, the trousers that come apart and unzip and, you know, and, and so I, I met a couple. We rented a car together to go because the train uh, the train service died from, uh, from Ravenna to Bologna. And uh, they were Rex, Rick Steves devotees. And I said, you do realize that dressed as you are, you, have, you are wearing a gigantic kick me sign.
0: <laughs> you are ready
1: to be insulted because you know why? Would you go? Would you go? They they were from Seattle or Portland or something. I said, would you would you would you go out to a business life dressed like this? I said, you know, <laughs> well, why, why do you want to look like a freak? Well, they were their little things were hurt, but um, but really, I was I was trying to do them a favor. Dre- don't don't dress like you're like you're an escapee from a de- from a deportation camp. You don't have to wear a, a tie. I do, by the way. One of the reasons I get treated so nicely all the time is I'm I'm dressed like a down at heels uh, uh, Italian uh, college professor. So every I'll be walking down the street and they call Professore, Professore, and you know how do they know? They know <laughs> the tweed jacket and the baggy trousers and the and the and the spotted necktie. But yeah, you've, um, got the, you've
0: got the uniform on.
1: But wear, dress business casual at the worst you know, and, uh, and be polite. Always, Italians never make a request without saying, please, thank you, if you please, your prego is the most common word, uh, which means basically, I beg you, it's like si vous plait in, uh, in French, but everything Pre Because there are, there are polite people who don't wish to stomp on your feelings. And the more you accommodate yourself to the way they live, instead of saying, all I want is a cup of soup, in a in a in a four star in a three star restaurant. No, you don't do that. You you, you go with you have to go with the flow, and and uh, don't don't build up too many expectations. Read history more than guidebooks. There's a there's a lot of different old uh, old books on Roman history, not not just of course given. and um, there, are, there are lots of um, depending on where you're going. There are there are lots of nice old movies, uh, Italian movies. You know Fellini's early movies are wonderful, They're very charming, very uh, very exuberant. Uh, uh, Pietro Germi made, uh, made a wonderful made a wonderful movie called uh, called A Seduced and Abandoned about Sicily. It's, it's, it's I've seen it at the time, times, screamingly funny. And uh, there are several. There's a nice Italian filmmaker who wrote uh, who did a couple of movies recently. One of them is called I think Ferragosto, the August holiday. And you get a beautiful sense of life in Trastevere during the during the August holiday. And in fact, he was living right near uh, the, the little wine bar Ombre Rosse, the the, the the red the red shadows, where uh, I have spent many a happy morning, afternoon, and evening with uh, other dissolute people. But uh, <laughs> so there's and just 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 don't don't construct the Holiday you want to have in your mind in advance. Let let it happen. Let it happen. Read as much history and literature as you can. Taking part, you know that takes place wherever you're going. But then just let it let things happen and don't don't overplan your day. Don't too much. When you get tired, sit at a cafe and drink wine or eat gelato. Smoke a cigar. Let it, it, it enjoy life for a change. Hmm.
0: One of those, uh, one of those dreadful uh, Clint Eastwood type uh, chomp cigars. I suppose you can get at uh, your local tobacco. There. Um. So he
1: he hated them. They're called uh, they're called uh, another hint uh, another hint. You know, get only on this program. They're called Toscano Classico, and you can you buy them in a little box with about four cigars. They're extremely powerful. They taste like they've got Greek latakia in them. <laughs> and uh Eastwood was Eastwood rebelled. He hated he hated having to have that. But a friend of Rozov, he made me buy him ten boxes at one point when he was when he was dumb <laughs> down. Because he smokes those things all day long. And by the way, usually with a cigar you're reluctant to relight it because then it has this harsh, nasty taste.
0: You can't mm-hmm. tell the difference with the it. <laughs> Feel free to um, light it and put it out twenty times. Might uh, but, but I say, uh, Doctor Fleming, among the ones uh, I know you've listed, Livy, Tacitus, um, Virgil, Ovid, maybe the least intimidating of those in my mind for the beginner coming to Rome would be Livy. And I think you have yes. some of those fun anecdotes in there. I I remember the first time I saw a little island in the middle of the Tiber, and I thought of that that scene in which uh, the Romans throw all their wheat into uh, into the river to, to to keep it from the uh, the invaders. And I thought, well, that, that island probably isn't that island, but, you know, reading the Livy really brought that part of the river alive for me. And, um, it's not, uh, the, the Livy is also not very long. So I think it's something people can get through quite easily on a plane ride. Yeah.
1: yeah, And, uh, well, fortunately most of Libya is lost. So, uh, imagine somebody, somebody wants came to Rome, and they said, well, what do you want to see? What are the wonders of Rome? This is, this is uh, you know, in the age of Augustus, and he said, I want to see Livy. He's a man who's written more books than I have read. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, oh. Livy. there are certain ancient writers that um, that uh, can be read. Uh, I've read, you know, read at the beach, read all- Livy, Herodotus, Plutarch, uh, and, uh, you know, Quint. Uh, these, these are wonderfully entertaining. There, there's, a, there's a lot of depth of things to chew on, but it's anecdote after anecdote after anecdote and they're telling anecdotes. So uh, it's so much better than reading some bare uh, account in a, in a textbook.
0: Well, I think that's as good a place as any for us to stop today, Dr. Fleming. If you have any questions for Dr. Fleming or follow-up, you can simply email podcast. That's plural. Podcasts at Fleming Foundation. We'll get those questions to Dr. Fleming, and we can either answer them on a future episode, or he'll put them in ransom notes if you're a subscriber, which you definitely are if you're listening to this podcast. Is that restricted to our subscribers, our members who help make this content possible? So again, as always, a thank you to you uh, for helping make this content possible, and of course, thank you to Dr. Fleming for taking time from his schedule to share the wonders of the Eternal City with us. Dr. Fleming, thanks for your time.
1: But a pleasure.